Folks, I'm very glad you're here today. Uh, I've got a very important topic to uh, talk about. Uh, we're talking about med- medical ethics and God's view on this and developing a Christian understanding of medical ethics. Uh, I was a fool to think I could do this in one sermon, I tell you. Uh, I just want to tell you that up front. It is killing me what I put left on the cutting room floor this morning. I realised I can't tell you everything and I can't do every issue. I was going to talk about contraception, IVF and euthanasia, but and I've got a lot of really important things to say about those things, but I've actually left those for another day. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, a framework of Christian understanding of medical ethics because I think the main thing we need is to develop a Christian understanding about how we approach these things in general because then you can look at any issue and try and work it out. Okay, I think that's what's most, most important. Um, so that's the approach I'm going to take. I also want you to know I will be talking about abortion today. Um, so one thing I want to, know, want to be able to say straight up front is I need you to know that Jesus offers full forgiveness for everything you've ever done in your entire life, if you look to him for it. I can't start this talk without talking about that. One in three Australian women will have an abortion in their lifetime at this point in time. So I want you to know, regardless of who you are or what you've done, when your conscience, when your conscience screams at you how guilty you are, Jesus offers the solution. And you can actually move from today fully forgiven for your past and move forward looking to live under his rule in the future. And that's what today's about. It's not actually about trying to elicit guilt. It's about talking about making good decisions in the future and developing a Christian understanding about how to live under Jesus' rule better. I'm going to cause you to think this morning, so please be prepared for that. Uh, in fact, how about I pray now that we do a really good job of, of, talking, uh, of, of thinking through these things uh, now. Uh, let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have a word to say about some of the really difficult issues in life. Um, and we, we thank you that you want us to live wisely in this world. Please help us to think really clearly and deeply and carefully now and to come away with greater clarity and greater compassion around these issues as we seek to live well in the world and uh, try to testify that your way is the best way to live. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, I want to develop a Christian understanding of ethics, and I want to uh, basically, as I've read a great deal on this topic, I've been following following the Sydney Morning Herald on these sorts of topics all the time to see what the latest things are, what's coming up, a couple of journals and that sort of thing. At the heart of the differences, I see over and over and over and over and over again between a Christian view on these issues and the world's view come back to some very foundational, uh, deeply held philosophical differences that aren't often brought to the surface. And so I want us to think about these things that are below the surface first because everything just naturally rolls out of these assumptions. Here's the two different ways of thinking about medical ethics. What's the basis of ethics? What we're talking about is Christianity says it's about God's design. God made the world and there's meaning and significance and purpose built into it. And we need to honour that design and uphold it and follow the way God's made the, the world to operate and people to operate. Our society, the reason I hear over and over again on every ethical issue for the way we want to approach this is, it's about my choice. Human choice is the most basic ethical idea that drives and motivates everything and kind of defines what's what and and what's right and what's wrong and and, and this sort of thing. So it comes to very different places. Um, Christian ethics is about God's design, God upholding God's pattern and design of creation. So we define healing as Christians about bringing wholeness to people. How do you find wholeness? Bringing wholeness to people is how God's designed them to be. 
fixing brokenness in relation to the pattern of how God's designed them to be, rather than using medical technology to make people something they're not. Our society bases ethics more and more on the ability to choose. Uh, It's about maximising human choice. It's the most sacred value we have as a society. And so we're quite willing to use medical technology to do anything that people choose to do with it, more and more. Very, two very different starting points for medicine. Um, it plays out in very different ways. So I asked you before about personhood. What makes a person a person? Christianity says personhood is something that all human beings possess. Our society more and more says that personhood is something that only choosing individuals possess. If you've got the ability to choose, you're a person. And if you don't, well, you're not really a person. And that principle applies to abortion, contraception, IVF, euthanasia, every issue plays out in different ways, but these are the principles in play. And so I'll give you a a couple of quick glimpses, but we'll see these ideas go over and over as we go through the material today. Um, So our modern society is really choice-centred, so it's individualistic. What we do because of that is we believe very strongly as a society that other people shouldn't be a burden to us and that relationships shouldn't limit our choices and options in life because we're choice-centred individuals. And so to be a burden to other people in our society is kind of immoral, it, it, it actually threatens the idea that you might be a person because you're, you're stopping the most sacred right of another person. You're limiting their choosing ability. But for Christians, being a burden to other people is the very shape of human existence. It's relationships. We are designed to be a burden to each other and the weak, the sick, the vulnerable are our burden to carry as Christians. People should limit our choices. Because out of love, we serve them and make them our burden to love and, and serve and carry very different outcomes. Let's, just, let's get into medicine. I want to say I think a great deal of medical technology is absolutely wonderful and should be embraced by Christians. It's just extraordinary how far we've come. Do you realise how far we've come in such a short time? It's amazing. <laughs> like, the germ theory of disease wasn't proven until the end of the 1800s, right? As in microorganisms cause illness. They didn't know that yet. It wasn't proven yet until that stage. Penicillin wasn't discovered until 1928. It wasn't mass-produced until after World War II. So it's just extraordinary the rate we've come. And so in the 19th century, it was a different world. More people died of tuberculosis than all of the wars of that century combined. After World War I, so many people died in World War I. After World War I, there was an outbreak of Spanish flu that killed as many people as the war did (laughs) because they didn't have penicillin yet. We've come so far, so quickly. A hundred years ago, if my boys, I've got two sons, if my boys lived a hundred years ago, they would not have lived to the the age they are now because it's standard, ordinary medical technology we have and I'm very grateful for it. And we should embrace it. The parable of the prodigal son, what happened? He saw a guy in need. He picked him up and he used the best medical technology he had available to him to help this guy come to health again, to restore him. And that's what we should do too. But alongside this power of medicine and medical technology to heal is its power to do whatever we choose with it and to distort and destroy God's good design. And so it's important to distinguish here two different approaches to medicine and they, they can overlap and people can do both. Restorative medicine is about restoring people to health as God designed them. But more and more, people are using medicine transformatively. That is, to make people whatever they want to be. That's up to them. It's their choice. The most obvious issue is, and this is a massive issue in the US, not so big around here, the transgender issue. Here's how we approach it differently. Uh, A Christian response. A person wants to use hormonal and surgical medicine to change their biological gender. As a Christian, I say... 
they've actually got a, a pathological illness. Psychologically, they're not thinking right and they need help psychologically because they, they are a particular gender. It's the gender they were made in. And so using medicine to reinforce this psychological confusion is actually immoral. It's the wrong thing to do to help them and serve them. Whereas the modern response, more and more, is people are saying, well, people are whatever they choose to be. And it's actually immoral to stop them using medicine to transform themselves if they want, no matter how deluded they are. It's transformative uses of medicine. And it's a radically different philosophy of medicine too. So think about it. Medicine is about fixing bodies, right? Fixing bodies. Now... Medicine is becoming, for in a lot of circles, about fixing people's desires. I want this. Use medicine to get me what I want. Whereas before, it's not about fixing what you want, not getting what you want. It's about fixing your body so it's healthy again. You see the difference between restorative and transformative medicine? It's, it's really important. Do you know what the biggest spender on human improvement technology medicine is today? Biggest spender? The US military. The Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, has a budget of $3 billion next year. Uh, they are using their money to research machine-brain interfaces, exoskeletons, enhanced cognitive function, vigilance, wakefulness, improving muscle strength and endurance. Basically, they're creating super soldiers, is what they're researching. So that is their website. It looks boring. This is what their web website should look like, because they are trying to create Captain America, frankly, and they're spending $3 billion next year to do it. It's been around for a long time. But it actually gets very sinister. Who gets to experiment on who? Do you follow me? Transformative medicine's been called the Lego kit view of humanity. There's a Lego kit man that my, my son made. Because you can use the kit to make whatever you want, forget the instructions. But here's where it gets sinister. Some people are creators, and some people are the raw materials for other people's creations. Do you follow me? Who gets to experiment on whom? This is where it gets very sinister, transformative uses of medicine. It turns people into raw materials. Here's my mad scientist son who comes and gives me transformed Lego men all the time. But that's just Lego, right? This is where it gets really sinister. And what is a person anyway? Because if they're not a person, you don't have to treat them like a person. So which human beings are persons? That's the issue. Here's where the rubber hits the road, folks. Uh, John Wyatt is an English Christian ethicist who I've um, gained a lot from reading his work. Um, he, worked, he used to work as a clinician in neonatology in a referral centre in central London. Uh, and he worked with severely premature infants who were 20 to 24 weeks in, so 500 grams, sort of the size. 100 professionals hired to care for up to 500 babies a year. They spent £5 million a year for that, that service. And the technology they had, very, very sophisticated Dr. White says, neonatal care is arguably one of the greatest success stories of modern medicine. Uh, there's some concern some of the babies will develop disabilities or learning difficulties, but the majority of these tiny little babies do very well under modern care. It's wonderful. Clearly, this society has regarded these babies as special, unique, and they're worth caring for, even at great expense. But here's the thing. Just downstairs, the floor below, is the fetal medicine unit another medical unit with equally sophisticated technology and well-trained staff. And the job of that unit, through scans and imaging, is to identify abnormalities in children. And when they find them, they regularly carry out late-term abortions at 24, 28, 30 weeks, and even beyond. Just downstairs. Sometimes these absolutely alien worlds collide. 
Sometimes the neonatal unit people who are caring for these very small babies are often called downstairs to counsel a mother who's considering destroying her baby who is actually older, more developed than the ones they're caring for, just on the other floor. Can you see how important this, this issue is? What's the basis of ethics? God's design or is it up to me, my choice? Is a baby really only a baby if the mother chooses to think of it as a baby? Do you see what I'm saying? Because that's what that comes down to. Does the mother regard it as a baby? Because As a person? Because if it's not a person, you don't have to treat it as a person and offer care to it. This is an incredibly important issue to think through carefully. Absolutely crucial. Does God's design or individual human choice determine who is a person? Now, friends, I want to talk to you about the story of how Christianity engaged with these things at the beginning because we need to know our heritage and I think you'll find it extremely informative for how we should, we should address these things. Uh, Christianity was born in the Roman Empire and they engaged with these issues from the beginning of Christianity, right? Do you know what the most influential idea invented by Christianity that we take for granted now is? Here's what I think it is. All human beings are persons. Every single example of the species Homo sapiens that you want to point at is a person. That idea did not exist before Christianity. It is not how the Roman society thought. It's not how Greeks, nobody thought this way. In fact, in a lot of places, they still don't think this way. What do we mean by all human beings are persons? What I mean is we are all fundamentally of great value and equal value. Even the richest and most powerful are no more valuable than the poorest and weakest. We're all of equal value because all human beings are persons and persons must be treated with love, with respect, and they must be protected. And to treat them as less than that is actually evil. I read a... Talking about where this, this idea that seems so common sense to us hasn't taken hold in cultures so much. I read a book by a guy called Vishal Mangalwadi, who's Indian, obviously, with that, that wonderful name. Uh, he wrote a book called The Book That Made Your World. It's about the Bible. And what he's talking about is, I come from an Indian culture, he says, and the Bible and Christian worldview hasn't infiltrated our thinking as much as it has you Westerners, and you don't know how good you've got it, is what he says. People here don't think all human beings are people. They think strong human beings are people. And so he, he visited a low-caste family um, and they, uh, they, had a, they, they talked to them, how many kids do you have? And they said, oh, three or four. Three or four? Is it three or is it four? And they said, well, one of them, we haven't decided if it's a person yet because they weren't strong enough. We take this so fundamental, so basic, but it's not basic. Christianity invented this idea. All human beings are persons. That worldview I've just talked about in, for some Indian people, it's not all of India by a long shot, uh, was very similar to how the Romans thought about personhood. In, in Roman society, what made you a person was your rank, your strength, and your status before the law. And so this is what early Christians dealt with, dealing with Roman worldview. So here's how it played out in the story. In Roman society, infanticide, killing undesired infants, was extremely common. It was actually written into the law that you could do that. Uh, it was permitted for a father to leave any female infant or deformed or weak male uh, out in the elements to die of exposure because they're not people. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? This is how they thought. Abortion was also extremely common. They used methods, various methods, some of them very similar to surgical abortions we use today because they're not people. Slaves had no personhood before the law. If you took them to court, you could actually torch them in the witness stand to get them to say what you wanted because they're not people. Personhood's about status, it's about strength, and it's about power. And then these weirdo Christians came along. 
Christians believed what God said. All human beings are made in the image of God. And more than that, God's son became a human being. And God's son died for the poor and rich alike, for the strong and weak alike. We're all of the same class. We're all persons because he died for everyone. And if God thought all people valuable enough to send his son to die for, we need to regard them that way too. And so what bewildered Romans, they just couldn't figure it out, is Christians didn't just like tolerate people who were weak. They actually cherished them. They took disabled people in who were a burden to society and made them their family. And so from the earliest days, Christians engaged with Roman culture. They prohibited abortion and infanticide. Uh, here's some really early texts from Christianity, uh, just, just beyond the New Testament era. And as they engage with Roman culture, they have to make these things explicit. They said, sorry, it's translated in Old English, but don't commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. Thou shalt not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shalt thou destroy it after it is born. They had to talk about these things because this is what's going on. Now, Christians, I want you to know this. Christians were not just angry protesters, okay? They were responsible people who regarded human beings as their responsibility and their burden to carry. And so when Roman people started dumping infants by the side of the road, Christians would pick them up and bring them into their families. That's how they engaged with it. They grew big families, lots of women in their families, because dumped infants were their responsibility, because they're people. And the idea, this extraordinary idea that all human beings are persons began to seep its way into the way people think. Now, fast forward to the 300s. This is extraordinary. I love this. Um, Between 312 and 320, there's this guy called Constantine. He became a Christian in that decade, and he became the emperor of the Roman Empire in that decade. And he made the Christian religion, for the first time in history, the official religion of an empire. Constantine is is the guy. Uh, In 325, just after he was... Ground. He called a council called the Council of Nicaea that wrote that creed that we recited before about very important truths of Christianity, foundational truths. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus really is both God and a real human being who came to die for the sins of all human beings. Most practical truths in the world. Let me tell you about these guys who came just the generation after. These three guys, um, Gregory, Gregory, and Basil, the Cappadocian fathers, were born in the sort of the 330s. Um, they look like dry, boring men, don't they? They sound like it too because they're experts in the Trinity and experts in, in what's called Christology, the study of the person, Jesus. Um, sounds very theoretical. Let me tell you what their theoretical understanding of the Trinity led them to do. This guy here is called Basil of Caesarea. In 365, he became a bishop of the town of Caesarea and he invented a new institution. He gathered all this funding and he invented this extraordinary institution the world had never seen before. Now... His idea was based on seeing Christian monks in the desert who they, they developed strategies for caring for each other when they were sick, right? And he says, the city needs this. We need to put this in the city. And so he built this big facility. I'll describe it to you and it will sound familiar. It included extensive medical facilities, kitchens, baths, storehouses. It actually had a church and a monastery too. It was so extensive that Basil's friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, in the middle there, um, said, it's a new city. It's like Caesarea's a city and there's another city attached to it. It's so big. Three distinctives about it. Patients were not only treated there, but there were facilities for them to live there. It even had a separate specialised care unit for people with leprosy. The institution employed specialised staff, trained doctors, nurses uh, to diagnose and treat people and to provide care. And best of all, it was free. (laughs) It was free to whoever needed it, because all human beings are persons, and we will care for you if you come here. It was an extremely successful project, and within Basil's lifetime, there was one in basically every cathedral town. They called it a basileus after basil we call it a hospital (laughs) that's where it came from why 
because Basil believed in the Trinity, believed that God became a human being and therefore all human beings are people and therefore they have a claim on our care and therefore we need to create things like hospitals that will care for people because they're people and we need to love them and make them our burden. And because of that invention, being a doctor became a significant profession for the first time in history and medicine began to be viewed as a real discipline worthy of pursuit. It was a really exciting time. The same decade, killing infants was, made out, was outlawed by the Roman Empire. This over here is uh, on the, the, the other side is Gregory of Nyssa. That's Basil's little brother. In the same decade, Basil's little brother, Gregory, gave the first sermon, pub, first public address in history saying that the institution of slavery should not exist because human beings are people and we need to treat them that way. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, this, this is the power of this idea. All human beings are people. Now, two of our um, values as a church are we want to be adventurous and compassionate disciples of Jesus. And two questions we ask each other about that is adventurous. What are you praying for that only God can do? Compassionate. How are you bringing Jesus' love to the least? Just think of Basil of Caesarea's answers to those questions. Church, what are we going to do? We want to dream big and we want to treat all human beings as people. We should be challenged and inspired by the example of those who have gone before us. But of course we've moved since then. There's a lot more history after that. But personhood, the idea of what makes a person a person has changed. And now it's basically people are people who have the ability to choose. They're not really people until that point. Um, Now we're going to deal with an actual medical uh, ethical issue now. Um, It's very important as we deal with ethical issues, friends, that we don't just say no, okay? As we deal with medical issues, we can't just say, no, this is wrong. We have to say, that's wrong, this is right. Help us, let us help you make this livable. (laughs) Come and say yes to the the good thing that God intends. He's got positive, livable alternatives, and we're willing to let you be a burden to us and uh, for us to help make that happen. Now, I want to talk uh, about the issue of abortion. Um, uh, Australia performs about 90,000 of them a year at the moment. Um, One one abortion for every 2.8 births. Um, it's a lot. Uh, in the meantime, we've got no kids up for adoption. It's about 50 each year out, outside of families. Um, it's the big question, when's a human being a person? I think it's clearer now than it has been at any other point in history. People say, oh, it's so, we can see so much about human development. It's really unclear. It's really clear, actually. This is called the human zygote. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. When a sperm and an egg join, they form a single cell called a zygote, and from a medical embryonic perspective, there is no ambiguity about what that is. That is a unique individual member of the species Homo sapiens, a new human being. It it isn't its mother and father or just a combination of them. From the moment of conception, it is a distinct, unique human organism with its own genetic code, and from this point, it will direct its development from there to who you are sitting in your chair now. All of us look like that at one point. Like, like that at one point. Here's, here's the spaffling thing. The Lord Jesus looked like that at one point when he became a human being. And so we need to treat all human beings at every stage of development, from when they're a human being, as persons. Now, this cell begins replicating within 24 hours. Uh, it implants in the uterine wall around the end of the first week. This is just amazing. And mum's blood, blood supply starts to nourish it relies on mum's physical resources, even while it uh, directs its own development. Uh, progress is really quick at this point. Week three, spinal cord begins to develop, heart tubes begin to fuse, blood cells production begins. The baby's a millimetre long. Week four, regular heartbeat, early development of brain, thyroid, eyes and ears, arms and legs. The embryo takes on that typical C shape. 
Week five, nose, lungs and hands start to grow and baby's only eight millimetres long. Week six, feet, nipples, bones begin to form, fingers and toes. Week seven, the arms bend at the elbow. Hands and feet approach each other. Kidneys and taste buds develop. It produces its own hormones. Week eight, only the size of an apricot, but basically all essential internal and external bodily structures are present. And that's the end of the embryonic stage. Now, by week 12, the baby is fully formed. Fully formed, week 12. Just a lot of maturation to, to go from that point. Absolutely amazing. The development, as, as Psalm 139 talked about, it's not just God knitted people together in their mother's womb and he knew them as people before anyone else knew they were people. When's a human being a person? What stage of development? Mandy and I expect to welcome our third child around September 26. That's him at 21 weeks. We called him already Arthur, no pain. I know it's weird to name your kid early, but this is our subversive way of saying to anybody who asks, we believe he's a person from the moment he existed. And we will treasure him from the moment he existed for as long as he lives. He's not just a potential person. All human beings are persons at every stage of development. And that's the big issue. Because our society will never be convinced of that, not easily. In fact, the secular world's given lots of different answers to the question, when's a human being a person? Why does that matter? Because when they're a person, you have to treat them like a person. And when they're not a person yet, you don't have to treat them like a person. You can do what you like with them, um, really. And so here's some of the lines in the sand people have said, cross this line and you're a person. And there's lots of answers. These are all mainstream uh, people that respectable academic people have held to. I believe it happens at fertilisation as every embryologist does. Well, not necessarily the persons, because that's when it's a unique human organism. That's when it's a human, that's when it's a person. A unique, unique human, that is. They used to believe 14 days because 20 couldn't happen. That's old science. Um, some people believe implantation because it's able to mature because it's got, a, it's got nutrition. Of course, you need nutrition at every point of development, so I, don't, I just don't see you can do that. Some people say, well, capacity to feel pain, cross that line and you're a person. Viability outside the womb. It's able to survive without its mother. So 16, 20 weeks, then it's viable, then it's a person. Some people actually say birth is when it's a person because it's physically independent of its mother. Remember this individualism of our society? It's a very attractive idea. Independence of mother. There's still two rows to fill out. Some people believe it's when it's aware of its own existence. So we're talking about small children at this point. Others have seriously argued that capacity for self-value and decision is what makes you a person. Basically, again, the ability to choose is what makes you a person. Or the ability to live in our world independently in which case you've got to think girls become persons when they're about 12 and men become persons at about age 27 or something. Do you see how silly it becomes? What people are doing is they're saying, personhood, okay, I'm going to draw a line in the sand about just wherever I want to. When you cross that line, you're a person and I'll treat you like a person. It's so arbitrary. Why do you get to draw a line in the sand? See, here's the simple reality. It's a very simple diagram. Your body, somebody else's body. People talk about a woman's right over her own body. In a medical perspective, it isn't her own body. Genetically, it's a different body. Uh, it's, it's, it's a willful rejection of reality to say that's her own body. And yet still doesn't convince unless you think the baby qualifies as a person in their own right. And so, uh, even still, a lot of people think a woman's right to choose to be rid of this burden is of greater ethical significance than the baby's right to life because it's about choice. The baby can't choose yet. The mum can choose, so that's, that's, that's how it plays out. Some scholars have actually explored the logic of abortion and that sort of thing and where people arbitrarily draw their line in the sand and 
Here's a fairly shocking article. Please don't be distraught by it. These people aren't murderers, but here's the article. It was in the Journal of Medical Ethics. It was called Afterbirth Abortion. Why should the baby live? Now, hold your disgust and shock for a moment and follow the logic of how a society thinks about personhood, and that's what this article's about. A lot of the logic that justifies abortion. Persons are subjects who are able to make aims and appreciate their own life. That's their definition of a person. Once you can do that, you cross the line. You're a person. Um, therefore, babies and infants are potential persons because they haven't crossed the line yet and they don't yet have the moral status of person. That means you can, you can do what you like to them because they're not persons yet. And they say killing babies and infants, therefore, is warranted where there would be too great a burden on actual persons, parents, family and society where they would limit the choices of other people, basically, because these people across the line, they can make their own decisions. Isn't, isn't it just awful where the logic takes you? If you can't just say all human beings are persons. Now, these people aren't murderers. They're, they're exploring ideas in a journal. But the logic sounds frighteningly close to me to pre-Christian Rome. Now, friends, uh, abortion itself, this is a really distressing issue for many of us. You may find this section difficult. I'm not going to describe abortion to you. Uh, but I do want to say, uh, you may find, if you carry a lot of guilt over this issue, uh, I respect that and I really hope we can help you rather than just hurt you talking about this, but we need to be informed. Um, uh, I just want to say all the abortion methods that they use today are horrific. If you don't believe me, look it up. Uh, but don't look it up if you don't need to, because it's horrific. Um, more than a few practitioners have changed to the pro-life position because of their experience of performing abortions. Uh, I also need you to know as Australian citizens that Australia has some of the worst abortion laws in the entire developed world. The state of Victoria has what I regard as the worst abortion laws I've ever, ever heard of um, since 2008. Um, abortion is legal up to 24 weeks, perfectly legal for any reason, and at any point after that you can, any point after that, you can get an abortion with two doctors' approval for any reason that the doctors judge to be okay. And the practices that are perfectly legal in Victoria for abortion, I would describe as utterly barbaric. I, I won't describe them to you, but if you look it up, oh gosh. <laughs> because they're not seen as people yet. We're in New South Wales. Every state makes their own laws on this issue. Abortion in New South Wales is a crime. However, and it's a very big underlined however... It's legal if a doctor believes the woman's physical or mental health is in serious danger. By mental health, they mean sometimes almost anything. For example, um, South Australia is the only state that gives, keeps good data on this. In 2010, of the abortions that were occurred there, 96% of them were for the mental health of the woman. And that's a separate factor to actual psych psychiatric concerns. In fact, in New South Wales, the law lets social and economic factors allow for abortion too. So in, in reality, it's illegal, but there's almost no, no barrier to abortion if you want one in New South Wales. I've seen in Sydney yesterday abortion clinics openly advertise for abortion for up to 20 weeks gestation with a certifying doctor ready at hand and no referral necessary. That's abortion in New South Wales where technically it's illegal. Other factors are disturbing in their own right. One of the things I really feel for is that a lot of women are just not well informed about how harmful abortion will be to their own health. Uh, women's physical, psychological and emotional health will be affected very often in very significant ways and post-abortion grief is a very big issue in women's health today. But we don't, people aren't warned. It's also worth recognising as a father, uh, fathers have no right to stop their child being aborted, it's entirely the woman's choice. 
Now, friends, I want us to help people and not just disapprove of their actions. Um, And that means we need to think about why do people have abortions? We need to understand common motives. There was an Australian study done where they asked women why you had an abortion. Here's the reasons. First reason, 100% of them thought they had the right to choose because it's the most basic ethical commitment we have as a society. It's not called the pro-choice movement for nothing. However, when they interviewed them and asked the questions about the actual reasons they chose to abort, choice had absolutely nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Here are the actual reasons that they had abortions. 100% of them feared it would jeopardise their future. 90% said they couldn't cope. 85% said they couldn't let others know they were pregnant. 75% said they didn't think they could afford it. 65% said their partner wouldn't cope. Do you see what all of them have in common? Here's what they all have in common. All of those women believed they didn't really have a choice. They didn't really have a choice, is how they felt about it. It's called the pro-choice movement, and yet most women statistically who have abortions actually do so because they don't feel that having a baby is a real-life choice that's open to them to have. They don't feel like they can choose that option. And so, friends, I want to say the biggest way we can serve those who we know who are considering having an abortion is not just telling them it's wrong. It's willing to let them be a burden to us. It's willing to say, here is a practical way forward in life that I will help you with, with the reality that you're now a mother or, and you're now a father. We need to include dads in this too and get them to take their responsibility seriously. Now, more on that in a minute. I just want to talk about screening very quickly because it's a very big part of this picture that's very important. Um, today, there's lots of sc- pregnancy screening methods. We take it for granted that we'll do it. Ultrasound at 12 weeks, 19 weeks, standard procedure, don't question it. Um, and, and there's other tests that people opt into as well, some invasive and some that have risk involved. Um, here's the thing. We're increasingly able to screen for all kinds of things. We can detect far more abnormalities than we can actually heal, far more. We can also increasingly detect any number of other physical characteristics of babies too. The big question is, what are you going to do with the information when you find it out? What's the purpose of gathering that information about the baby in the womb? See, if information from scans enables us to be better prepared to welcome, for example, a child with a disability into our family, then I think it's a good thing. That can help you be prepared beforehand, can't it? It's great. But most often the assumption is that if certain things are detected, you'll abort the baby and try again. 90% of pregnancies where abnormalities are detected are aborted. 90%. One of the primary uses of the 12-week scan is actually so Down syndrome can be detected, and the assumption is if detected, you choose to abort. Um, Richard Dawkins made a storm this week, two days ago. Uh, He's always making a storm, but his views are very common. Uh, He said that if an expected mother discovered the baby had Down syndrome, he said, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have a choice. You don't have a choice, you have to abort it, is kind of what he's saying. He didn't actually apologise, he just said he was sorry that people felt upset. It's choice-centred ethic. Now friends, here's what we have to watch out with prenatal screening and a lot of other things as well. It's easy to use these things in a way that treats people like they're products rather than people. The attitude is, if an unsatisfactory product comes up in this quality assurance scan, we are in a position to be able to reject it and try again. And again, it's just a modern approach of using medicine to, to address people's feelings and desires and wants rather than addressing human bodies to help them be healthy as we can manage. We must only use medical technology to serve people in their healing and never to decide who's worth living. Now, 
a lot of heavy stuff there. I want to, friends, I want to give you, well, there's one more heavy thing, but I want to give you five points of application as we finish. Um, every sermon I've ever been to on this, people have said, yeah, but what about hard cases? And most often what people have done is they've said to the preacher afterwards, oh, yeah, yeah, but this hard case here proves that everything you said is nonsense, essentially is what, what happened. You can all think of hard cases. Um, one hard case, what if the pregnancy threatens the life of the mother? Well, those are difficult cases. The key is engaging with the situation, recognising the fact that there's two people involved, not just one. Abortion can be the right thing to do in a medical situation because two lives are at stake. But we approach the situation recognising there's actually two people here. That's the key, whatever the solution is. Start with two people because that's the reality. The other thing is after every sermon I've ever heard an abortion, somebody has said, yeah, yeah, but what if the pregnancy is a result of rape? Um, I'm sorry I have to talk about this, but I do, because people bring it up every single time. Um, is abortion legitimate in the case of rape? As hard as it may be to hear, no, it is not. No, it is not. Um, friends, we must always proceed by labeling the reality, realities in front of us accurately. There's two things that happen in that situation. There's an inexcusable evil that was committed against that young girl or that woman, and the perpetrator must be brought to justice. That woman needs to be served and helped. The other reality is that there's a baby there who is a person and they must be treated as a person. And so there's two people to care for in this situation, an innocent distraught mother and an innocent unborn baby. You're thinking, that's impossible. How can we move forward with that? That's, are you serious about that? Friends, what I want to say is in situations that we think are impossible, we need to call on God to use his immense power to show us livable options we never dreamed were possible beforehand. And people gone before us have done that already. This book here is called Startling Beauty. Uh, that woman there, Heather Gemmon, is a Christian woman who was raped by a stranger in her home while her children slept and got pregnant and she chose to keep the baby. There's her today with Rachel, who is a child who was the result of a rape. But she is very precious to Heather because she's a person and she needs to be treated as a person. God in his power can give us options that we never thought were possible. We need to believe that. It's true. Second thing I want to say is helping friends with unwanted pregnancy. I have a book here you can... I think this is a wonderful book called The Life Already Started. It's designed by a a medical expert, a Christian one, who um, uh, it's finding a positive path in in unwanted, unplanned pregnancy. Um, It's a wonderful book to put in the hands of a young woman of any age who has found herself pregnant and doesn't know what to do. It just gives you good information. I think it's a wonderful resource. Um, and it, it tells you about abortion and development of baby and pregnancy and keeping the baby and adopting the baby and what your real options are in the situation. But you know what's more impactful than giving a young woman a book? Give her the book and say to her, I believe your baby is of immense value and I want you to know that I'm willing to do anything I can. Actually, I'll support you in really costly ways if I can help you be able to have this baby. Good information is only as good as a friendship, isn't it? Costly support is what we need to offer to people. Third one, unexpected pregnancy in church. Friends, when Christians get abortions, it's often motivated by fear of how others will respond. It's better to make the whole thing go away. Here's a question I can't answer, but I want you to think about it. We need to think about it. Will our church community be the kind of place where people feel they can say, I've sinned, I'm sorry, I need your help. And they won't be stigmatised and it won't last forever and they can move forward without lasting shame. Parents, will be the, we'd be the sort of parents whose kids can say that to us. I've sinned, I'm sorry, and now I need your help.
or will they just fear too much that they can't tell us and deal with it with us beside them? We need to think that through. There's actually ministry opportunities uh, to help, people, help women keep unplanned pregnancies. There's a tremendous opportunity to serve. My wife's dream is to open up a shelter for women with unplanned pregnancies to help them and offer support. Um, such things exist. Here's, here's one service that, that facilitates a bit of that called uh, Diamond Pregnancy Support in Penrith. Um, it's, it's for women and girls who discover they have an unplanned pregnancy. It offers care, support, compassionate counselling, information, material assistance, educational assistance and mentoring programs. And I think that's the kind of response to abortion that Christians should esteem to. It's clear, truthful, good information and practical support and care. Lastly, friends, Jesus offers full, complete and perfect forgiveness for everything you've ever done. If we want freedom of guilt, understanding, compassionate help and healing that lasts into eternity, we need Jesus and we need to look to him. And he doesn't just save us from bewildering, bewildering mass... Sorry, he doesn't just save us. He tells us the right way to live. God's design. Start living it again. That's what he calls us to whilst giving us forgiveness for our past. Now, friends, you can see why I chose one issue today. I hope you've got a feel about how Christians should approach um, medicine um, med- and medical ethics. It's about God's design and upholding God's design. Now, you may feel very any number of feelings as a result of that. Um, I want to say I'd love to talk to you. I know I'm a man, and that might be who you want to talk to. Um, Joanne, my mother-in-law, would be a very good person to talk to. She'll be here at the end of the service to to chat if you'd like to. I'd love to talk further. If we can help you in any way with this or others you know, we'd love to, because that's what we need to be here for. Um, let Let me pray as we finish. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus into the world to save human beings. Thank you for the wonderful truth that all human beings are persons. Please help us to treat all human beings as persons and please please help us to be able to communicate these kinds of things to our friends to show that your way is better. Please, Father, if there's people hurting with these issues, please help them to work through it well and to find healing in Jesus. And when friends and and, and loved ones and this sort of thing in the future find themselves in difficulty, please help us to offer real compassionate help and support and to tell them what their real livable options are under your care and guidance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.